Well, I don't know how you feel about winter, but uh, winter takes me back to my childhood. Uh, I, I do love winter. Uh, I still get joy out of seeing snowflakes falling uh, past a street light or a porch light. Uh, I love the thought of playing on snow-covered hills and uh, all the semi-violent games that you can play on a snow-covered hill. Uh, it brings me great uh, joy, the freshness of a blanket of snow. Uh, I know that when you're old, like me, you're supposed to, unless you're on a snowmobile or on a ski slope, you're supposed to hate winter. Uh, but I really do love uh, winter. It brings me back to my childhood. Uh, one memory that it uh, brings to me is of uh, my dad. Uh, uh, my dad, uh, actually, I grew up in a very, very Christian home, like really, really Christian home. And uh, in the winter, I remember a particular Sunday when I was about 10 years old, uh, when we were driving through eight inches of snow to get to church, because that's what we did in our Christian home. And uh, we got to church, and it, much to our, my father's dismay, church was canceled uh, for some strange, unknown reason. And so uh, my dad did what any reasonable Christian man would do. Uh, we drove 20 minutes in another direction, actually in good weather, 20 minutes, uh, to another church to find one that might be open uh, on a day when there's eight inches of snow. Uh, we got there just as the service was concluding, uh, but we did go to church uh, that day. Um, that's winter. Uh, uh, thinking of my childhood, uh, really, as uh, studying the parables, we're in Matthew chapter 13, and we're uh, each Sunday in January, we're going to be studying one of the parables, one or two of the parables in Matthew chapter 13. Uh, it also brought me back to my childhood, where uh, we learned uh, really the, the simple, basic definition of a parable, and that is a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly, heavenly meaning. Your childhood was a little bit like mine, uh, too. An earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Uh, you know, as I, as I thought about that, uh, as I studied, I, I said that there's something right in that definition, uh, and there's also something wrong with this description of a parable. Uh, what's right is that a parables are simple stories about everyday things. Uh, they reference farming and fishing, lost coins, uh, sheep, uh, wayward sons. Uh, maybe not all of those things are part of our lives, but in the first century world, uh, those would be familiar, uh, familiar activities, uh, familiar features of life in the first century. And so uh, there is something true about it being an earthly story. Uh, but what is, what is wrong, I think, in that definition is when it says that it is a heavenly meaning. Uh, it gives the impression that there, is, uh, that there is one moral or one message from a parable, that it is, uh, well, that it is simple. And as long as you get that one fact, that one takeaway, you have done enough. Uh, when I really think that Jesus, the reason he speaks uh, then and to us today in stories, in parables, is that they're meant for us to, to turn them over in our mind, to ponder them and think of them uh, in light of what Jesus has wanted to teach us. To teach us. Uh, that when we meditate on them and reflect on them, a depth of meaning appears and we learn more than just one thing about what Jesus is teaching. Uh, we learn much about, well, in this case, God's kingdom. Uh, Matthew 13, verse 24, uh, is our simple story. Uh, it says uh, in verse 24, he put another parable before them, saying, the kingdom of heaven, so that's what we're comparing, the kingdom of heaven with this story, 
The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But uh, while his men were sleeping, his enemy came, and he sowed weeds among the wheat and, and went away. Uh, so when the plants came up and they bore grain, and when the weeds, uh, they appeared also, uh, the servants of the master of the house came and they said to him, Master, didn't you sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, an enemy has done this. Uh, so the servants said to him, then do you want us to go and to gather them, to gather the weeds? Uh, but he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Just let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, uh, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, uh, but gather the wheat into my barn. Uh, let's bow in prayer. Uh, dear Father, this is the story that you uh, spoke. Uh, it spoke, uh, you spoke to your disciples and it speaks to us. Uh, and I pray that you would help us to hear what it has for us uh, today. Uh, we love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so a simple story, a simple story of a farmer, a man planting his crops, uh, his enemies coming by night, planting weeds in the field. Uh, when the, the crop grows, his servants are dismayed that there are weeds intermixed with the wheat. And their recommendation is to pull the weeds now. But the master says, wait, wait, wait uh, for the harvest, and then he will set things right. A uh, simple story, maybe with a simple meaning. Uh, does it merely mean that God will, uh, God will get them in the end? Because uh, really, we look at this and we see, we, we see ourselves on the side of good and we uh, know what the evil is. Is it merely that God will make things right in the end? Or is there more in this parable uh, of the weeds? To answer that question, uh, I think we need to enter into the minds of Jesus' original audience. Uh, we should always do that or attempt to do that if we're going to understand Scripture, uh, what it meant to the original folks that it was written to or spoken uh, to. Uh, so Jesus is speaking to his disciples and to a crowd of uh, his followers. Uh, he is early in his ministry, uh, but there are already some things that are apparent. Uh, one is that Jesus is claiming more than to, be, to be more than just another teacher. Uh, he claims to be the deliverer of Israel, the Messiah. And his disciples have accepted that message. They have received it. Uh, but secondly, it is also clear that not everyone believes. Uh, in Matthew chapter 11, uh, several weeks ago, uh, we studied that uh, there were, Jesus spoke about unrepentant cities. Uh, entire cities of people that were unreceptive to him uh, and to his message. Uh, in chapter 12, he's accused of violating the Sabbath by the religious leaders. And later on, he's accused of even doing miracles by the power of the prince of demons. Obviously, not everyone is receiving this message, and they're not receiving uh, Jesus as the Messiah. Uh, to Jesus' disciples, I am certain that this created a huge problem. Uh, the disciples knew 
that they were God's chosen people. And God's chosen people were waiting for a Messiah, and they believed Jesus to be the Messiah, but the reality is not everyone did. And I'm so, I'm sure they asked themselves, why doesn't everyone believe? Uh, were your people, why don't your people believe? Is this a sign that you're not the Messiah? Is God's plan failing? Uh, or maybe we're doing something wrong. Or maybe God's doing something wrong. Uh, Jesus' disciples, they listen to Jesus. Uh, or, or Jesus, as he tells the story, he tells it, I believe, to disciples uh, and followers who are saying, what does it mean, uh, the reality that not everyone is receiving uh, this one that we believe is the Messiah? Now, we are not first century Jews. Uh, but I think there are parallels. There are parallel questions that are, uh, that are in my mind at least and perhaps uh, in yours as well. Uh, do you ever wonder if God's word is true, why doesn't everyone see it? Why not everyone? Can't God make it so that everyone believes? Uh, maybe at least everyone that I care about. Uh, I would like that. Uh, why is the church divided into so many denominations? Uh, why is there so much evil in the world? Abortion, natural disasters, violence, pandemics. Why doesn't everyone believe? Why is there so much evil? Uh, I think it is into this context that Jesus speaks this parable. Uh, and he tells us, once again, a simple story uh, of a farmer planting a seed. Uh, the good news about this parable is that, uh, kind of like your math textbook in elementary school, some of the answers are in the back. Did you know that? Uh, uh, just go down to Matthew 24, 36, and Jesus' disciples asked him and said, what, what does this parable mean? It, it, it's a simple story, but I, Jesus, what are you getting at? Uh, and in uh, those few short verses, 37 and following, Jesus says, uh, the man, the farmer, uh, he is the son of man. Uh, this is Jesus' way of re uh, referring to himself, uh, saying something significant about his humanity uh, but also uh, clearly attributing that to himself. He is the one who sows the good seed. Uh, next, he says that the field, uh, the field is the world. Same, their world, but also our world, the world that we live in. Uh, this field is the world. Uh, and the good seed, uh, in the first parable in this chapter, was the word of God. Uh, in this parable, Jesus says, no, the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. Uh, that seems kind of fancy language. We don't talk about kings and kingdoms uh, in our culture. Uh, but to make it simple, a, a kingdom is uh, someone who reigns over people. And the sons of the kingdom are those who recognize the reign of the king and submit to it. Uh, those who follow uh, the king. Uh, Jesus says the good seed is those who recognize and submit to their king. Uh, but then he says the weeds. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. We'll talk about the evil one in just a moment. Uh, the interesting thing about the evil one uh, in relation to a king is to, to submit to a king, you have to know who the king is, you have to know what he expects, and you have to place yourself under his authority and obey him. Uh, that's how you show yourself to be part of his kingdom. Uh, to be the son of the evil one, uh, you don't have to recognize the king, you just have to do your own thing. Uh, you just have to follow your own rules. You don't have to explicitly follow the evil one, you just have to live uh, as if the king does not have authority over you. Uh, but in doing so, Jesus says, these weeds, 
they are the sons of the evil one, the followers of the evil one. Uh, and then Jesus makes explicit in verse 39, he says, the enemy who sowed these seeds is the devil, and the harvest, it is the end uh, of the age. Uh, well, as we go through this, we're going to see this passage. We're going to see two plantings, uh, we're going to see two questions, and we're going to see two harvests at the end. Uh, the, but first, two plantings. The planting of good seed, uh, followers of the king, and uh, the presence of those who don't follow the king. Uh, Jesus, I believe, is answering the question, why doesn't everyone believe? Uh, why is there so much evil in the world? And his answer here, not the only answer that Scripture gives, but a significant one is, because we have an enemy. Uh, there is an enemy, and he defines him as the devil. Uh, now this uh, maybe seems obvious, but um, sometimes we have to make things a little more obvious. Uh, that means that the enemy is not your spouse. Do you believe that? Uh, uh, many years ago, Ron and I went to a, uh, a marriage conference, uh, and that was the first thing they do. They said, look at your spouse and say, uh, you are not my enemy. Um, I'm tempted to ask you to do that today, um, but I'm not going to. Um, uh, because the reality in that moment, all of us kind of laughed. Of course, we would never act like they're not the enemy. Uh, but in our hearts, we said, it feels like it sometimes, though, uh, that this is the one who thwarts my happiness, who frustrates me. Uh, all of these feelings... Uh, but the reality is, Jesus says that, that we have an enemy. We have a real enemy. We have a big enemy. Uh, and it's not our spouse. It's not our kids. Uh, they too thwart my plans uh, from time to time. Uh, they don't do what they're supposed to. They don't stay where they're supposed to. Actually, mine stay where they're not supposed to too long. Actually, let's not get too personal here. Uh, let's move on. Uh, sometimes we treat the people we live in our house as if they are the enemy. Uh, but that is not the true enemy. Uh, it's not your boss. Uh, it's not your enemy. Uh, a politician is not your greatest enemy. Uh, a political party is not your greatest enemy. Uh, a vaccine booster or a vaccine... Ah, we'll just leave that at that. But it, it's not... That's not our greatest enemy. The enemy is the devil. Uh, and if we treat lesser enemies, we misidentify them as a private enemy, uh, we will be misguided. Uh, our energies will be misused in the wrong direction when we fail to realize that there is a real enemy uh, who has a goal and a desire, something that he's trying to accomplish and has an end. Uh, there's three things that I think that we should know about the enemy uh, that uh, Jesus' disciples would have believed. It's not explicit in the text. The first is uh, that this enemy... Uh, that he, Jesus defines as devil. Uh, that's the New Testament word for Satan. Uh, the word Satan is used in both Old and New Testament. Uh, the first thing is that Satan is a created being, that he is real and he is a created being. Uh, this means that he can be both powerful uh, but not equal to God in power. Uh, uh, the, clearest, uh, the clearest passage that we have about Satan's beginning is back in Isaiah chapter 14. I'd invite you to turn back to Isaiah 14 uh, for just a minute. Isaiah chapter 14 uh, is a, is a uh, chapter that is a judging the enemies of Israel. 
the enemies of the people of God. Uh, but in the middle of this chapter, uh, there's a section that, uh, that seems a little bit too grand and big for any human enemy, any human king uh, opposing the people of Israel. Uh, and this leads many Bible scholars to, to suppose uh, that Isaiah is ultimately referring to the power behind the throne, uh, the spiritual forces at work behind Israel's enemies, and that ultimately he's talking about uh, when Satan fell. On uh, Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12, it says, How are you fallen from heaven, O day star, son of day dawn, son of the dawn? How are you cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low? Uh, you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven uh, above the stars of God, and I will set my throne on high, and I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north, and I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Um, that's exalted language, an exalted goal. Um, and we believe, I believe, that this is talking about Satan himself who said, you know what, I desire the worship that God has. I desire the power and authority uh, that God has. And I will exalt myself as an equal with the Most High. Uh, that was his desire. This was the first sin. Uh, because we see Satan in the Garden of Eden, we know that his fall occurred before uh, Adam and Eve uh, were tempted. The original sin was an attempt to, to achieve equality with God. Well, how did that go for Satan? Uh, we just have to read one more verse where it says simply, but you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you. Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook uh, the kingdoms? Uh, the reality is that Satan is a created being who is powerful, influential, glorious in many ways. But he is not God. He is defeated by God. He is God's adversary, yes, he is opposed to God, uh, but he, is, uh, he cannot ultimately challenge God. Uh, all that he can do, and this is the second thing that we should learn uh, about Satan, that we should know about him, is his purpose. His purpose is to deceive, disrupt, and destroy faith and trust in God. That's what Satan works at. Uh, we have other evils that we face in this world, other frustrations, uh, other defeats that we deal with. Uh, but the big battle is about faith and trust in God. Will people trust in God? Uh, for those who do not believe, Satan seeks to make faith uh, not worth worrying about. It's not a big deal. You can handle it later. It's not that significant. Just go and live your life. Uh, if that doesn't work, he like, makes the faith look like a ridiculous choice. How could you believe those pie-in-the-sky stories? Uh, they're fairy tales. Uh, it's a ridiculous choice. If that doesn't work, uh, he chooses to make it, uh, faith look like one of many good options. It really doesn't matter uh, what you put your faith in as long as you put your faith in something. Uh, just whatever choice seems right to you, uh, but not faith in the one holy almighty God. Uh, that's his strategy for those who do not believe. Uh, for those who do believe, he seeks to make them ineffective. Uh, he seeks to make them afraid. He seeks to make them distrustful of God uh, and unwilling uh, to influence others and draw them to serve uh, the one true king. Uh, how does Satan accomplish this? 
Uh, well, we've learned a lot about that in the ways that the Bible talks about Satan, the names that it gives for him. Uh, in uh, Matthew chapter 4, where we were a few months ago, Satan is called the tempter. 1 Thessalonians 3.5, it says, uh, Paul writes, uh, I fear that somehow the tempter has tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Uh, that he'd make you uh, ineffective in, in your work. Uh, the tempter seeks to lead us astray, uh, out of fellowship with God our Father, and more consumed with ourselves and our desires than God's will. He seeks, he is the tempter. Uh, he's also, Satan is also called the accuser. Zechariah 3.1, he is an accuser of the saints before God. Uh, perhaps we see this most clearly in Job chapter 1. Do you remember Job? Uh, in Job chapter 1 it says uh, that angels appeared before God and a Satan also appeared before God. And God said, have you considered my servant Job, his faithfulness, his trust in me, his love for me, uh, and Satan says, uh, yeah, it's easy for him to have faith in you. You make everything go right uh, for him. Uh, don't you wish your life was like that? So, uh, we do. Uh, Satan accused Job of only believing because God, uh, because God blessed him. Uh, God, sought to sh God showed Satan uh, that Job loved him uh, regardless of the result of his life. Uh, but Satan is the accuser. Uh, he accuses us before God. Uh, he casts accusations in our own heart. Uh, we're not good enough. We will never be good enough. God couldn't really forgive us. Uh, he is the accuser. 1 Peter 5.8, Satan is described as an adversary. It says he's an adversary like a roaring lion looking for people to devour, to destroy. Um, he doesn't always have to destroy, but ultimately... Uh, if he cannot distract, he cannot disrupt, he cannot misdirect, um, he will, his desire is to destroy. He is the source of evil in this world. Uh, how does he do this? Uh, John 8.44 calls him the father of lies. In fact, it says when, when Satan lies, it's his native tongue. Uh, that's what he naturally speaks. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14, he's described as an angel of light. He can look so good. But ultimately, once again, his desire is to deceive and destroy faith in God, to make us not trust in him. Uh, for Judas, this involved putting into his heart to betray Jesus. Uh, for Peter, uh, when he stood before Jesus and said, no, you can't go to the cross, uh, Jesus said that Satan desires to sift and manipulate you according to his purpose. Uh, a man by the name of Ananias in Acts chapter 5, uh, it says that Satan filled his heart to lie, uh, to misrepresent uh, his righteousness before, uh, before the church. Uh, the father of lies puts this into the hearts of even believers uh, in order to make them not trust God, uh, but to seek their own will over God's will. Perhaps most scary of all, as John 12, 31, Jesus describes Satan as the ruler of this world. Uh, 2 Corinthians 4, 4 calls him the prince of the power of the air. Now what this means is that Satan does have real authority and power and influence in this world. He is at work seeking to undermine the plans uh, of God, to distort and corrupt God's plan in the world. He is active. He is powerful. That's scary but he will ultimately be unsuccessful. That's what the story 
uh, tells us. Uh, he is at work, uh, but God's plan will not be stopped. Uh, that's the third truth that I would say about Satan. Uh, Matthew 25, 41 uh, tells us that hell, uh, the final place of judgment, was originally planned uh, for the devil and his angels. Uh, that ultimately, uh, he has a destiny in store, and he knows it. Uh, he'll do his best uh, to delay and disrupt God's plan, uh, but his eternity is secure. You know, that's a lot about Satan. That's a lot of talking about the devil. Uh, his role is our adversary, his tempter, his accuser. Uh, we could be consumed with it and with finding it. Uh, but I would just caution us that what Jesus, the message of this parable, one of the messages of this parable, is that we need to remember that there is an evil one who is the source of evil. Um, but ultimately, his end is secure. His battle is the big battle. He is our true enemy, and when we are fighting lesser enemies, uh, we can easily be distracted from the battle over faith and trust in God, which is of primary and most significance. So who are you fighting? Who are you treating as an enemy today? Remember who the true evil one is, uh, the true enemy. The enemy is good at what he does, though. He really is. Uh, we see that in this story once again. Now, there are two plantings, uh, and eventually those crops uh, take root, and they start to grow up. And uh, it becomes apparent uh, at a certain point uh, that the servants notice that there are two crops growing from these two plantings. Uh, Life-giving wheat, uh, maker of bread, the foundation of the diet of an ancient of a first-century person, uh, but also a semi-poisonous weed, uh, probably called darnel. Uh, it's a rye grass uh, that uh, makes, if mixed with wheat, uh, has some damaging effect if you eat enough of it. And its seed form and its early growth, it's dif difficult to distinguish from wheat. It's not until full maturity that the head of the wheat appears, and then you realize what is wheat uh, and what is uh, weed. And Jesus' servants, uh, they recognize this. And so they ask, uh, I'll say two questions. Uh, really, I'm combining the first, uh, first two things that they say into one question. They say, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? In this question, I think we see uh, Jesus saying that there are some who will doubt God's goodness. He said, didn't you do this? Uh, you are the one who sowed the, this seed. Uh, didn't you sow good seed? How does it have weeds? Uh, God, how are you, are you not able to finish what you start? Uh, can I trust you? Uh, it's a little bit like the question that, uh, uh, or when Adam spoke in the garden, when God confronted him with his sin, and Adam says, uh, God, the woman that you gave me, uh, she's the one who led me uh, into sin. Uh, it's so easy. Uh, it is the, the lie of the tempter. Uh, to say, no, I, I, I'm going to shift the blame on someone else, uh, even shifting it, in this case, onto God. Uh, this first question reveals doubt in Jesus' goodness, doubt in his ability to uh, bring, this, uh, bring this crop uh, to the harvest, to completion. I said, Jesus, can you really, did you really do this? Something went 
wrong. Are you aware of this? Do you know? Everything is out of control. Uh, but the master simply replies, an enemy has done this. Uh, there is evil in this world. That is true. And Jesus, in this story, says, yes, that's because there is an enemy. He is active. He is working. Uh, you are not unaware of his strategy, his goals. Uh, be prepared. There is an enemy. It is not a sign of my failing or my inability to bring things to conclusion, uh, to their right conclusion. It is a reality that there is opposition. Be prepared for it. Uh, if you think that life is going to go well, and it doesn't, uh, and, it will, and it will not, uh, you will be sorely disappointed if you recognize that there is opposition in this world, uh, but we are on the side of the master who will overcome the opposition, then there can be hope uh, and joy uh, even in the midst of the terrible things that do happen uh, in this world. Do not be unaware uh, of Satan, his goals, and his schemes. Uh, They're not caused to doubt uh, Jesus' goodness. Well, then they ask the second question. They say, uh, what should we do? Uh, in fact, they have a suggestion. They said, should we go out right away? Uh, we need to dig out these weeds. We need to remove them from our healthy crops so that they have room to grow and to flourish and build. Uh, let's dig up these weeds immediately. Let's pull them out. You can imagine, uh, if you place yourself in the, in the place of these servants, as you ponder the story, uh, just imagine how furious they must feel. Uh, they had worked hard to plant and tend this field, and now their work would seemingly be for naught. Uh, the enemy is wrecking our crop. We're going to have nothing to show for it. The enemy is winning, and that makes me angry. We need to do something. Let's tear it out. We are men of action. It is time to act. Uh, if the first question uh, that the servants asked indicated doubt in the master, uh, the second reveals impatience with the master, and perhaps a hint uh, of overconfidence in their ability to make things right. Uh, this belief that if we don't do something, uh, nothing will be done. Uh, but Jesus once again says, no. No, in your overzealous attempts to root out the bad, you are in danger of causing more harm than good. Uh, the cure uh, may be worse than the disease. Uh, he says, wait. Uh, in gathering the weeds, you could destroy the wheat uh, along with them. Uh, does this ever happen uh, in our lives? Uh, my first thought actually went back, uh, went back in history, a long ways in history. Uh, shortly after the Protestant uh, Reformation in the 1500s, uh, history shows that there were a number of wars. They're called the Wars of Religion. Uh, Catholics killing Protestants, Protestants killing Catholics, Anabaptists rebelling against Lutherans. Lutherans, uh, actually the Baptists usually got the short end of the stick in most of, uh, uh, most of those battles uh, back in those days. Uh, there were wars because people believed in their faith and it was significant and important. And so they're going to compel people to respond. Uh, but in doing, the end result was a black eye in the, on, uh, on the church as a whole and on God as Christians fought Christians. This is part of the reason that our founders of our country restricted the power of the state uh, to compel faith. Uh, sometimes our attempts to root out the bad can cause more harm 
uh, than good. Uh, I think sometimes this can happen in the church. Uh, sometimes churches act as if they can do enough to control a behavior. Uh, that if uh, we have enough rules and enough restrictions and enough penalties and enough fences that are placed up, that we will eventually root out all evil. Uh, it's, a, it's an overconfident belief that I can, by managing external behavior, I can control people's heart and create faith and trust in God. Uh, and the reality that doing more, that rushing ahead, and a confident belief that I can make everything right often leads to bad results. Uh, it happens sometimes with parents. Uh, when we squeeze tighter and tighter, uh, thinking that if we are in control, if we can do everything, we'll make sure that our kids don't struggle and everything goes all right and everything is okay for them. Uh, but in the end, uh, it often does more harm than good. Uh, Jesus says, no, now is not the time uh, to fight this battle. Uh, lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat uh, along uh, with them. Well-intentioned, good in the uh, fight against evil uh, can, if not done in God's time, do more damage than good. Jesus says, wait. None of this is outside of my control. I still have a plan and a purpose that I am working. And so he says there are two types of seeds, but know that there are going to be two harvests. Uh, in the later portion in this chapter, he describes that harvest in a little bit more detail. Uh, he says in verse 41, the Son of Man will send his angels, and they will, at the harvest, uh, they, will gather out all, they will gather out of all his kingdom all the causes of sin and lawbreakers, and he will throw them into the fiery furnace. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Uh, Jesus says there are two harvests coming. He says, uh, in the right time, I will come and I will make things all right. Uh, that the, the part inside of your hole that chafes against the lack of justice and, uh, and evil that is called good and good that is called evil, uh, that part that cries to say, this is not right. It should not be this way. That Christ will come and justice will be done. There will be punishment uh, for uh, the wicked, uh, it says, uh, that they will join the devil and his angels in the place that was prepared uh, for them. Uh, when will this happen? Uh, well, a few uh, month, a few uh, last month, Pastor Chris uh, talked from Galatians chapter four, verse four, when he said that Christ came in the fullness of time, uh, when the time was ripe, uh, just as in the harvest in this case, the the only time or the best time that the weeds are distinguishable from the wheat is when they're fully developed, fully mature. Uh, when you can see uh, the head of the wheat, um, it distinguishes it from the, that which is not good. In, in a similar way, God says, I will come in the fullness of time, when the time is right in my eyes. Uh, what exactly does that mean? Uh, there are hints throughout Scripture. In Romans 11:25, it says that God is waiting for uh, the fullness of Gentiles to come. It said non-Jewish believers that God is waiting for them to, uh, for an, a, the right number to come before he uh, continues on his plan for the end times and returns his attention uh, primarily to Israel and to the Jews. 
In 1 Peter 3, 9, he says God is waiting, uh, not because he's slow, uh, but he longs for people to come to repentance because his mercy is great, and he's giving people opportunity for repentance. Uh, really, it is a conflict in our own hearts because longing for justice, which is a good thing, it is a very good thing, uh, but also uh, the need and the reality that God is waiting for people to turn to him, uh, that part of his plan is waiting. Uh, the danger that we need to be aware of is sometimes we treat as enemies uh, those who God sees as ones who, could, who need to turn to him and can turn to him. He says, you know what, you're, you're, treating as, you're misguiding over who the true enemy is and not saying that those who seem to be your enemies are really the ones who Jesus came and he died for. And who longed to, he longs to see them turn to him. And you might be the person who leads them in that direction. Uh, there's hints of that in, uh, in uh, Daniel 12. Uh, Daniel 12, verses 2 and 3 is a very interesting verse. And it probably uh, foreshadows what Jesus says. Or perhaps he even had this in mind when in verse 43 of Matthew... He says, and the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. In Daniel 12, uh, Daniel writes, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake in the last days at the harvest, uh, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Jesus says, who are the wise? Who are the, uh, the sons of the kingdom of God? They are those who turn many to righteousness. Uh, the battle that God is facing, is fighting, is the battle over faith and trust in him. Will we believe? Uh, he showed the extent of his love uh, by the, the, the first, the major battle in that war was of his son laying down his life so that people could see the extent of his mercy and grace and be drawn to him. Uh, that is how he fights uh, this battle. And he says, our job, if we are wise, if we are sons of the kingdom of God, is that we too should turn many uh, to righteousness, uh, to turn people uh, to righteousness. That is our, our calling uh, in this world, in this life that we live. Uh, a simple story, Jesus tells. A simple story of a farmer of uh, two plantings and two questions and two harvests. Uh, but as we ponder that story, as we think about it, there's, there's much that is there. I think Jesus is telling us, first, don't be fooled by who the real enemy is. Uh, don't choose the wrong enemy to spend your life fighting against. Uh, I think he tells us to don't be dismayed by unbelief. Uh, don't, don't give up by the presence of evil. It has a source and it has a place. Uh, but the harvest is yet to come. Uh, I think Jesus in this story tells us to not believe the lie that it all depends on you. The reality is that God is the hero uh, of the story. Yes, he works through us, but he is the hero, and ultimately it is in his time and in his ways that we fight. And lastly, I think he says, keep trusting God. He's not done yet. Even when it seems bad, even when it seems black, even when it seems dark, he is not done yet. Uh, he is not dismayed. He is not panicked. 
He is working his plan um, through us. He who has ears, uh, let him hear.